0: into this building as I try to say as often as I can to remind us that we don't just go to church we are the church uh, the Bride of Christ if you are among the redeemed um, and speaking of the redeemed in this this kingdom language and imagery which we'll get into in just a second that was that was a sweet practice for what we're going to do for eternity just a moment ago the creativity of um, the music uh, brought together the song of the church the um, which I usually like to kind of stand right out there a song early and just listen to the voices from the front side. But I could hear them from the back side this morning, from the very back row, and that was really, that was cool. Um. Let me go ahead and invite you to to open up your Bible because we got a little bit to get through this morning uh, and I don't want to waste any time. Uh, If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 17, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, We've been in the book of Luke for quite some time. We're going to be there a little longer. Uh, Hopefully by the time this cool weather becomes warm and then starts to get cool again on the other side of the summer as we move into the beginning of the fall. We'll be closing up shop on the book of Luke. But until then, we're going to continue to dive into this this great story. We're right in the middle of Jesus' ministry and teaching. Um, I've said this before because I guess I just keep naively assuming that it's not going to get heavier the further we get into this this book. And that's just not true. Uh, We have some very heavy words to sit with this morning Uh, straight from the lips of Jesus himself. My aim is to simply try to expound and unpack what Jesus is saying to all of us. Uh, And so let me pray for us this morning um, that the Lord would move through this means of grace that we call the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, that we could come to you with those words to begin a prayer is a wonder of wonders in and of itself. It screams of the doctrine of adoption, The beauty, centrality, and hope of the gospel. The good news that we don't have to wait until next Sunday to proclaim. What a tragedy it would be if we only proclaimed it one Lord's Day per year. So, thank you for the privilege of being a part of a church that shouts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as often as we can. A church that partakes of the bread and the cup, knowing that as often as we do, we proclaim your death, Jesus, until you return. Thank you for those means of grace that are ours every time we come together like this. Spirit of God, I pray that you would move in power and might this morning. Otherwise, what, what are we doing? It's an exercise in futility pray that you would stir our hearts. I pray that you would awaken our minds from whatever slumber they may be in this morning. God, we, we live right in the middle of an epicenter of cultural nominal Christianity. So easy to open the Bible and for there to be this great disconnect from our confessional theology, what we say we believe, and our functional theology, what we truly believe when the rubber meets the road. And so I pray that, that you would... Uh, diminish, minimize the disconnect between the two and bring them together in harmony this morning. I ask you to do that as we sit with your word in front of us, trusting that your word never returns void, and that includes some of the heaviest red-letter words that exist in all of Scripture. Praise you for them too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So there's this this theme, there's this word, there's this phrase that shows up over a hundred times in the synoptic gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You just heard James reference it, this idea of God's people and God's place under God's rule. It's this theme that we call the kingdom. It's a theme that, that you see all the way back in the earliest chapters of Luke's gospel account, in fact. Jesus said to the crowds back in chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. That's why I'm here, Jesus says. We talked about this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount series, for those of you who are around for that series, that this message that Jesus made central to his ministry is the message of the kingdom. His preaching and teaching point to the kingdom. His parables and miracles point to the kingdom. If we think of Jesus apart from the kingdom, we've missed something of who Jesus is, of what Jesus is about. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, it wasn't just the anointing ceremony of heaven's priest, but the coronation ceremony of heaven's king. This idea of the the kingdom, it's been around since the the very dawn of creation. There's a reason that the best of stories uh, begin with once upon a time. Those words are, are borrowed capital, by the way. Taken from the, the greatest story of all, the story that you and I are a part of, what theologians call this great redemptive meta-narrative, the greatest of stories that we're characters in. God, the author of this story, and not only author, the author, but a character himself, the greatest character too. There's a reason we love stories with kings. And kingdoms and princes and princesses and dragons and dragon slayers knights in shining armor happily ever afters because that's part of our story all those things are part of the world that you live in that i live in we're caught up in it we can't escape it this idea of the kingdom it's been around since the the dawn of creation as god created our first parents to function as priest kings we've talked about this A number of times along the way. Adam and Eve not only meant to guard the garden sanctuary of Eden in a priestly role, so to speak, but to exercise dominion over all of creation in a a kingly role, a queenly role. To fill the earth and subdue it, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. To cultivate creation for the glory of the greater king. As many of us know, our first parents responded in rebellion to that. Greater king, sadly, choosing a life of judicial autonomy, a life of self determination. And then the world came unraveled, which is why sickness is real in this story that we're a part of. It's why death and pain and sorrow and suffering are part of the story, inescapable too. Generation after generation of marred image bearers refusing to live as God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And yet, boy, if this isn't good news, God was determined to establish a people for himself, nonetheless, a people whom he would liberate from the kingdom of this world, bringing them under the reign of his kingship, his good and glorious kingship, showing them how to live under his rule, under his reign for his glory and their joy. You see it in the progression of redemptive history from the days of Abraham to the days of Moses to the days of David, and yet there was always this future hope of a king greater than David who would someday come to bring salvation, establishing a rescued people for himself who would live under his reign. That's the backdrop of the Old Testament as Jesus comes onto the scene, declaring, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Up to this point, and if you've been around for this study of the book of Luke, you know this. Luke has shown us the kingship of Jesus in a number of ways. In his rule and reign over sickness and evil. In his authority to forgive sin. His lordship over the fish of the sea and the institution of the Sabbath. The exercising of his kingship in the forming of a new people. The 12 apostles, hearkening back to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, the new 12 through whom God would fulfill his redemptive purposes as sent ones with authority to bear authentic testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've just seen, if you go back to last week, an inbreaking of the kingdom of God in both the physical healing of the 10 lepers and the spiritual healing of the one. We've just seen it. And yet, the Pharisees continue to fail to understand it. The significance of the the message of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Which is why Luke tells us, if you pick up in chapter 17, verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say, look, here it is, or, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. As many of you know, the Pharisees had established a, a code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures. Some of the more militant Pharisees going so far as to use violence to establish and maintain strict, intensified observance of the Jewish law, believing that that would establish the right conditions for God to make good on his kingdom promises. And along comes Jesus, speaking with an authority all his own. Who is this Jesus? Drawing large crowds, talking about the kingdom of God. And yet in a very different way than the scribes and Pharisees were talking about the kingdom of God. Not at all in accordance with their expectations of a Messiah who would overthrow Roman tyranny, give Israel her political independence. All the while offering God's kingdom to all the wrong people, tax collectors and prostitutes, lepers and paralytics. What is he doing? So the Pharisees approached Jesus, yet again filled with misunderstanding, asking him when the kingdom of God would come looking for something not only future, but but something with with visible evidence in accordance with their faulty expectations. All the while, the inbreaking of God's kingdom was right in front of them. Behold, the kingdom of God, it's in the midst of you, Jesus says, it's right in front of you. Again, I, I can't, I can't escape that that imagery of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal, as I've said before, who was so close to the celebration that he could feel the thump of the music in his chest. That he could smell the meat on the barbecue, so to speak. It's right in front of you. Don't miss it. Not in the the visible, observable expression that that they might have been expecting, yet in front of them nonetheless. Presents us with the question of what kind of faulty expectations do we have of the kingdom of God? Pharisees, they had all they needed standing right in front of them the messianic fulfillment of the law and the prophets. As Jesus said to the crowds back in chapter 12, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? As we talked about back in chapter 12, weather in the first century Mediterranean world, it was predictable in a number of ways. Clouds rising in the west would bring dampened air that produced showers as as they ascended the cooler hills. Same with south winds blowing in from the desert, which brought with them scorching heat. You can predict the weather based on the signs, Jesus says, but you fail to see the signs and the blindness of your hypocrisy that the kingdom of God is upon you. In the words of one scholar, they, they understood the winds of earth but not the winds of God. They could discern the sky but not the heavens. Their religious externalism prevented them from seeing the significance of the coming of Jesus I mean, think about the incredible irony of what's happening here. And that the Pharisees were asking the very king of the kingdom when the kingdom would come. And he said to his disciples, verse 22, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. Here Jesus turns to the disciples as he continues with this teaching on the coming of the kingdom. With the Pharisees, Jesus emphasizes the the present in breaking of the kingdom in response to their concern about and focus on its future. With the disciples, on the other hand, Jesus emphasizes the future inbreaking of the kingdom in response to the temptation on their part to look for its full realization in the present. As Jesus will make clear in the very next verse, we'll get there soon enough, there's a cross that must come before the crown. And that's not only true for Jesus, but too for his followers. And he said to all, going back to chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Contrary to popular belief among many professing evangelicals, Jesus knows that there are days of distress and suffering that await his followers that becoming a Christian doesn't do away with that unraveling thing that we talked about earlier in this story that we're a part of. Days when his people will long for the revealing of the Son of Man, when they might even be tempted the disciples to lend an itching ear to those bringing false reports. In those days, people will come along, Jesus says, claiming to have the inside track on the coming of the Lord. We've seen it over and over again, right? Pay no attention to those people. When it's me, you'll know it's me, Jesus says. As visible and real as a flash of lightning, lighting up the sky from one side to the other so that all can see it. This is a very perplexing passage of Scripture. I'll be honest with you. I actually read several scholars say this very same thing, a very humbling thing to sit with, which is namely... I'm not really sure what this means. There are a couple of possibilities. Scholars are divided on whether Jesus is referring to his second coming here, which is the conclusion to which most of us are likely to gravitate. But he may be referring to the bringing of judgment upon Israel and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and her temple, which would come in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. Either way... Jesus' teaching here is is relevant to both days of judgment, really. The destruction of Jerusalem, a foreshadowing of the judgment that will come when Jesus returns. Verse 25. But first, first the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Again, the, the cross must come before the crown. Jesus having now directed his gaze toward the city of Jerusalem, going all the way back to chapter 9, the city in which his very own words would be fulfilled, the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah, the death of the story's greatest character who would then come back to life through a resurrection that we will celebrate in all of its glory next Sunday. Everything up to this point in Luke's Gospel account, helping us see just how desperate we are for Jesus to make that track down the Calvary Road, sinners that we are. We're no different from our first parents in that regard. Jerusalem, now the goal, the focal point of where the story's headed. Son of God, firmly resolved to die in the place of sinners, that he might rescue a people for himself, that he might save a people to himself. Who would live under his reign. Only then will the future inbreaking of the kingdom come. He goes on in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying. And being given in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Here Jesus likens the impending judgment to the days of both Noah and Lot. Two Old Testament examples of God's punishment of the wicked. And yet... And this is fascinating. Notice that Jesus makes no mention of sinful behavior here. Rather, he simply describes the stuff of ordinary life and human experience. In the days of Noah, eating and drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. In the days of Lot, too, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. None of those activities inherently wicked. It's not to say that the people in Noah and and Lot's day weren't wicked, as we know that, that their wickedness was the reason for their very destruction. And yet, Jesus focuses not on their wicked behavior, but rather on the fact that they were so focused on the stuff of ordinary life that they missed it. They didn't see the judgment of God until it was upon them, until it was too late. In Noah's day, swept away by the rising flood waters. In Lot's day, consumed by the raining flood of, of fire and sulfur. Such would be the case for over a million Jews who were killed in the besieging of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Go read about that in the annals of history. An act of judgment on the Jewish people in the wake of their rejection of Jesus and his kingdom. We've seen it throughout the story of Luke. So too will be the case for many when Jesus comes again with the clouds. The second coming of Jesus. Many will will be going about their business as usual. Walking the dog. Watching the next thing in the queue. Stuck in traffic. Mowing the lawn. None of those things inherently wicked. Wicked. Simply examples of the many ways that we can get overly focused on the stuff of ordinary life, distracted so that we're unprepared for the master's knock, to use that imagery going all the way back to chapter 12. Jesus refuses to, to let the weightiness of his kingdom get lost on us and the full implications of it all. Verse 31. He goes on on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This is not some easy believism that Jesus is teaching. This is not walk an aisle, pray a prayer, fill out a card, coast to your death, and you're good. Again, some argue that, that Jesus is referring to the impending destruction of Jerusalem. And with that, a warning to flee the judgment to come. No looking back. You, could, you can just envision when that moment hit, just a few decades after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, that there were people fleeing the city, not looking back. And yet the imagery broadens for us. As Jesus has already, in a more broad sense, spoken of the danger of looking back in his encounter with the three men back in chapter 9. One to whom you may recall, he said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's that kingdom language again. Think about this it wasn't so much about where Lot's wife looked as it was about what Lot's wife loved. She perished because her heart was back in the city of Sodom. I'm reminded of those in the parable of the the great banquet, chapter 14, who all made excuses as to why they couldn't make it when the day of the banquet arrived. I bought a field. I have to go out and, and see it. I bought five yoke of oxen. I must go examine them. I've married a wife. Therefore, I can't come. Reason after reason after reason. So will it be on the day of judgment, Jesus says, when the true nature of our hearts is revealed? I mean, if the propensity of our hearts is to look back now on the things of this world from the housetop or the field, so to speak, then the propensity of our hearts will be to look back then on the things of this world when Christ returns so that the true nature of our hearts will be revealed on that day. Just like the true nature of Lot's wife's heart was revealed on the day of the judgment of Sodom. Jesus has already said it. No turning back on the Calvary road, the road of true discipleship, He's not just a worthy savior, but a worthy king, the Lord. He goes on in verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Two people sharing the same bed. Two people sharing the same office and yet two very different destinies. One spared, one consumed by the the flood of God's judgment, like those in the days of Noah and Lot. Again, perhaps referring to to that moment in 70 AD, what happened to the city of Jerusalem and her temple, yet nonetheless a a picture of the final judgment when the Lord will separate the sheep from the goats, no creature hidden from his sight. I'm reminded of the, the man with bigger barns, chapter 13, or excuse me, chapter 12, self-focused, delusional. He thought himself the least delusional person in his sphere, relationally. Believing himself to be secure, having established enough in the storehouse to eat, drink, and be married for years to come, all the while failing to consider that his soul might be required of him at any moment. That the souls of men and women will be required of them when Jesus returns to set all things right. The disciples, they feel the heaviness. so They respond in verse 37. They said to Jesus, where, Lord? And he said to them, as if it weren't heavy enough, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is in the Bible? Jesus says there won't be any guessing. Where spiritual death is present on the last day, God's judgment will too be present, much in the same way that vultures circle a carcass. That's heavy. Perhaps Jesus had in mind the Pharisees who were like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, yet within full of dead people's bones, harboring an inner darkness, a decay, the stench of death, Perhaps Jesus simply meant to to communicate something of the the finality, the totality of of the coming judgment on those who are not for him but against him. As Luke has shown us numerous times over, there there is no third position. There's no position of neutrality when it comes to to Jesus. Regardless of, of what the imagery is meant to communicate in its fullness, it's a sobering picture to say the least, is it not? On that day, many will least expect it, going about their lives as they would any other day. Eating, drinking, buying, and selling, planting, and building. Completely unaware, to use some of that Narnian kingdom imagery, that they're on the side of the white witch. And that the great war is about to ensue. And that they'll be on the losing side. Stakes are high. These red letter words carrying with them the weightiness of eternity. Proclaiming something so vastly different than is being proclaimed here in the American South. And has been for years. Speaking of Lewis and his great work, The Weight of Glory. I've shared this quote before somewhere along the way. He says... It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, all day long, He says, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. He goes on to say, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, he says. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Again, this is a kingdom story. There are only two kingdom options. The kingdom of Jesus... The rightful king of heaven and its throne? Or the kingdom of this world? We can't escape the fact that we're characters in the story. And it's heading somewhere. What a sobering thought to sit with Lewis's words. To think that though we will all die unless Jesus returns first. We will all live forever. Some will live as everlasting splendors. To use Lewis's words. Seated around the banqueting table of the master himself. While others will live as immortal horrors, separated from God forever, like the rich man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, in an eternal, inescapable nightmare. The author of Hebrews says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts If you're not a Christian, and this is, this is one of the amazing things about this great story, is God is, is the, the grandest storyteller in weaving these themes together that preach so beautifully. Because here's the reality. If you're not a Christian, the truth is that God has made a way of safe passage, as he did in the days of Noah and Lot, for us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus would go on to hang on a splintered Roman wooden cross. We'll celebrate it on Good Friday just five days from now. Bearing the judgment of God under the darkened skies of Jerusalem. That the darkness sweeping over Jerusalem that day. And we'll get there soon enough in Luke's story. It's a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus in our place. That he was swallowed up in the flood of God's judgment to use that imagery that you and I might have safe passage into his eternal kingdom, that our story could be one with a happily ever after to end it. I implore you to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him, that you might be on the right side of the judgment when the master returns and for we who profess to be followers of Christ. I pray that these words of Jesus would fill us as we've talked about so many times now. With both joyful gratitude and sobering urgency. It's the inescapable both end of the book of Luke. Joyful gratitude and knowing that Jesus bore our judgment fully and finally satisfying the just holy and good wrath of God against our sin how dare we call it good friday that's why in this is love 1 john 4:10 not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the wrath bearing sacrifice for our sins joyful gratitude Boy, if the the bread in the cup don't taste sweet this morning, they never will. Joyful gratitude, yes and amen, as we consider just how deep the Father's love for us truly is in Christ. Paired with a sobering urgency. An urgency in terms of our expectation and readiness for the Master's return. Prepared to, to open the door, so to speak, upon hearing His knock Eagerly longing for the return of the one who gave his life for us. The one who took our judgment upon himself. Mow your grass, it has to be mowed. Take the dog out. If you don't, it's going to be a mess in your house. But do that too to the glory of Christ. Don't miss him in those mundane moments. Give your life for him in glad submission until you see him face to face. That's Christianity too. And with that, a sobering urgency to evangelize the lost. As again, there are, in Lewis's words, no ordinary people. I pray that God would fan into flame in our hearts A deeper zeal for evangelism that many more might be found on the right side of judgment when the master returns. There are a lot of people out there who wouldn't be caught dead stepping into a place like this 50 weeks of the year. Who just might show up for a Christmas service, an Easter service. Maybe this is the moment that the Lord calls us out of our comfort zone to take seriously what he says here in this morning's passage of Scripture. I don't care about building a big church. That's not why I say that. I care a lot about the kingdom of Jesus. Let's pick our spots. Let's be wise. But let's evangelize like all of this is real and true.